Chapter five. The goal tonight is to conclude the entire chapter. So we have a lot to do tonight. So where are we holding in Tanya? What's the flow of ideas currently? Where we are holding is like this. We are in middle of uh, learning, studying about, going through the entire structure, the operating system of the godly soul. In fact, this is going to be the final chapter exploring the godly soul. Next week, chapter six, we are on to the animal soul, to the natural animal soul. And the tiny is very methodical. It took us from the inside to the outside. It took us from the innermost part of the psyche, of the structure of the soul, and made its way to the more peripheral layers. We learned about the soul's innards, its inner world. It has intellect. The soul has intelligence. It has a worldview. That worldview gives birth and informs the emotional world of the soul. And then we've learned that the soul also has the ability to express itself, that it can express what it thinks and what it feels uh, in behaviors. And there are three modes of behaviors, thought, speech, and action. Those are the three modes of behavior. And with these three modes of expression of behavior, the godly soul is able to express what it feels and what it knows, its convictions, it can follow its convictions, it can act upon them. So what are the activities of the godly soul? The godly soul, its activities, its outlet for what it's looking for is Torah and mitzvahs. A mitzvah is an expression for the soul. Studying Torah, the engagement in Torah study, that's an expression for the soul. And then the Alter Rebbe, in last chapter, chapter four, explained to us something quite profound. The idea that the mitzvahs that a soul does, in fact, gives it the opportunity to connect with God. And the author explained to us this concept that really God is, is unreachable. Logically speaking, from a purely rational perspective, that God is totally beyond reach of a finite human being. There, there is absolutely no common ground for any form of relationship. Rather, God has literally invested himself. God is found within a mitzvah. God is found within Torah. When you do a mitzvah, even though it's physical, the author says, don't get distracted by the physical trappings of a mitzvah. It's God. You are intimately bonding with God. When you light Shabbos candles, this isn't a candle and a wick. This is God. When you eat in a sukkah, yeah, you're technically surrounded by four wooden, wooden walls with a little bit of greenery over you. You're really surrounded by God. You put on tefillin. These are not leather straps. It's God. You're wrapping God around you. Yeah, it's God within leather straps, but that's just the physical trappings. And therefore, every time you do a mitzvah, 
That is the way that a Jew connects with God. Chapter 5. We're here at chapter 5. Chapter 5, in this chapter, the author of is going to go a little bit deeper and show us that Torah study and doing mitzvahs are actually different. Until this point, we've grouped them together. You do a mitzvah, you study Torah, it's all the same thing. But in fact, if you want to get a little bit more specific and a little bit more precise, Torah has one effect on the soul, mitzvahs have another effect on the soul. Let's read the opening paragraph, and then we'll do a little bit more uh, introductory remarks before we read inside. So, top of the page, there's no page number here, but it's the top of page 57. Chapter 5, What Torah Study Does for the Soul. Okay, as we learned in chapter 4, Torah study and mitzvah observance enable the soul to intimately bond with God. In this chapter, the Tanya will explore why, of these two activities, Torah study offers the more intense connection. So let's just talk about needs, right? There's Maslow's Pyramid of Needs. So what's, what's the bottom layer? What are the most integral needs for a person? Food, I mean. So food is obviously very important. What else, what would you say? Water, food, sleep. Shelter. So food, shelter. What else? Uh, connection, probably. Connection is already a deeper layer. That's already higher up on the uh, on the on the pyramid. So part it's it's a little bit part of shelter, but clothing. The person needs clothing. It's an absolute necessity, All right? If you if you need clothing, you need to have shelter, of course. You need to have where to live. You need to have food for survival, right? These are the basic survivals. So these are needs. So if these are needs for the physical body, you know, spiritual life is very closely related to physical life. So our soul as well needs has those needs. So the same way our bodies need to eat food and need shelter, we need clothing, we need protection. And clothing is more than just protection. Uh, so to the soul needs food and clothing. And these are essential needs for the soul. What the author is going to tell us is that Torah study is food for the soul. Mitzvahs are the clothing for the soul. So let's think about it. What does clothing do for you? And what does food do for you? So clothing, which is different than food, but clothing is something which is always... It surrounds you. It doesn't it never becomes part of you? It doesn't leave a lasting effect on you, right? Like I'm right now wearing this tie. The moment I take off my tie, the fact that I was wearing a tie a half hour ago, right, means nothing. Right? I could have been in pajamas a half hour ago, but as far as you know, I've been uh, dressed like this the whole day, which actually I was. But right, clothing it's it, it's not it's not a part of you. It doesn't become a part of you. It's something which surrounds you, it encompasses you, uh, and it protects you. But more than just protecting you, it gives you an aura. 
it puts you in a certain frame. That's also why clothing is so important. Right? Clothing is not just protection, right? From Maslow's perspective of needs, if you had rags to wear, that would not that would not fit the bill. Even though technically you are covered and technically you're sheltered against the heat, that's not the need of a human. The need of a human is to feel a bit dignified. I'll tell you a little story. I'll tell you a little story. So when I was 18 years old, I was a counselor in the, in the Chabad summer camp in upstate New York. And there's a little boy in my bunk who was from Ohio. And um, he was a good kid, very good kid. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the summer, he started getting very, very sad. And he couldn't get into it. He couldn't get into the sports. He lost all of his spirit. And I asked him, what's, what's wrong? What's... And he was so frustrated. He said, he would cry. I don't even know what's wrong. I don't know what's wrong. And one night he was just so miserable. I took him out and I sat him on the bench and I said, you have to tell me what's wrong. He says, I don't know what's wrong. So I said, you know, just talk to me about life. What happened today? Just talk, talk to me about camp. What are you thinking about? Like, what's... And I just tried to like, just pull as much as I can from him. And all of a sudden I discovered that in the last laundry day, he forgot to put his socks in the laundry. And camp, you know, camp is camp. You can't just go do laundry any day, right? There's, there's a schedule and you send in all your laundry and that's it. There's no, there's no available. So all of his socks are dirty and he's wearing dirty socks. And he doesn't even connect it. He didn't even connect. He happened to drop to me in the conversation that he has no socks to wear. And I'm like, whoa, one second. I said, is that, is that bothering you? He says, yeah, that's really bothering me. And I said, okay, I'm going to, I'll wash your socks tonight. <laughs> he became a happy kid again. It taught me a lot about children. You have to be very patient and you have to really work hard on uh, listening closely. But also clothing is a real need. Okay, so clothing is a very real need. You need to feel like a mensch. You need to feel comfortable. You need to feel clean. And clothing, it, it sets you in the right tone of, of, of frame of mind, right? If you walk around in pajamas the whole day, like we did at the beginning of COVID, you're not a mensch. You don't feel good. You don't feel empowered. When you get dressed, you feel good. You feel empowered. So that's what clothing does. It sets you in the, in the right frame of mind. It puts you in a certain aura. That's clothing. What's food? Food is very deep. Food has no purpose if it's, if it's around you, right? If you've got food in your fridge, if you've got food in your pantry, that's not the need of a human. It's not to have food. The purpose of food, what it does for your survival, for your needs, is that you have to eat it. And when you eat food, it becomes very much a part of you. You digest it, you ingest it, then you digest it, uh, you metabolize it, and it literally becomes your flesh and blood. Your food becomes you. You become one with your food. And then you could live off it. It gives you life. So whatever food does for the body, that's what Torah does for the soul. Whatever a mitzvah, whatever a garment does for the body, that's what a mitzvah does for the soul. And the author is going to show us and demonstrate to us that there's something great about Torah study. Something greater about Torah study than even doing a mitzvah. So let's begin reading. 
Let's begin reading chapter five. Here we go. Part one, an unparalleled unity with God. Okay. The author of it says like this. Let's clarify in more depth the term grasp as used by Elijah the prophet when he said, no thought can grasp you at all. So this was a quote from the Zohar, which is quoting Elijah the prophet, the same one that comes around to our satyrs every year, and the same Elijah that comes around by every Jewish boy's circumcision, by the bris. That Elijah the prophet said, no thought can grasp you at all, which was a theme, a big theme of last chapter. God is unreachable. God is unfathomable. And the author says, wow, you know, that, that's an interesting term, grasp. No thought can grasp you. Grasp? You grasp a cup. I can grasp this cup. You see this beautiful message on the cup? Kindness is catchy, so be a super spreader. All right, that's nice. From Chabad Windsor. From our dear friends right over the river at Chabad Windsor. L'chaim, l'chaim. Okay. So you grasp a cup. You grasp a ball. What does it mean? No, no thought can grasp God. Like, what, what does grasp mean? So the author is going to give us a deep dive into how the process of studying something works. The mind, intelligence, human intellect. How does it work? And it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting concept here, what the author says. So let's, let's read. Grasping intellect. When your mind conceives and masters an idea, we say that your mind grasps it, meaning that it assimilates and engulfs this idea. Right? In the English language, we have it. Did you grasp the idea? Do you get it? The same could be said from the perspective of the idea itself. Once you've thought this idea through, it is grasped, meaning assimilated and invested within your mind that was mentally processing it. Which means, if you want to kind of like visualize this a little bit, there's me, there's my mind, and then there's an idea. Let's give, let's, let's, I'll give an example. Let's give the most basic example. Two plus two equals four. All right. There was a time in all of our lives where we did not know that two plus two equals four. We just haven't yet discovered it. It was an idea that lived outside of us. So there's me, there's my mind, our three-year-old minds, which has yet to conceive that two plus two equals four. So there's me, my mind, and then there's an idea which is outside of me. When you study an idea, and master that idea and understand it properly, that idea now goes within you. You grasp it. You envelop it. You engulf the idea. The idea goes inside of you, just like food. You eat food, you eat an idea. It goes into you. And we even feel it mentally. You could say, I have it. You grasp an idea. It enters within you. Like if you're studying something and it's a little bit deep and it's, it's, it's not clicking, 
you say, I don't have it. It feels, it feels beyond you. It feels outside of you. And then when you get it, oh, I get it. Then you feel like you're in control. I got it. I grasp it like a firm grasp on a ball. I got it. That's how it works. Okay, let's keep on reading. But then there is another inverse dynamic as well. While you are grasping and assimilating this idea, your mind is also invested within it at that time. It's very interesting. When you study something and you master it, it goes into you. But think about it. At the moment that you are studying and concentrating and focused on studying an idea, you enter into it. You are immersed in an idea. I'm studying something. Right? If we're not talking about like, you know, cheap reading a book. Talking about, you know, real study. You, 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 you invest yourself into a study. Right? You could study enough that it could, you could sweat it. Real studying could be real work. You know, you're plowing through a difficult, a difficult, uh, a difficult idea. So while you are studying it, you enter into the space of that idea, and that idea surrounds you. You are immersed in an idea. When real studying is happening, you can't just go and do something else. I'm busy. My mind is somewhere. My mind is stuck somewhere. My mind is stuck in an environment. I can't just, I'm there. I'm within an idea. You go into that space. So it's very interesting. And this is going to be the idea. Whenever you study anything, I'm talking about real studying, not just like, you know, cheap study. Right? Not like, uh, you know, we're talking about real, real study where you really grasp an idea and you bring it within you. Two things are happening at once. The idea goes into you and you go into the idea. Now, from the perspective of physics, that's an impossibility, right? <laughs> if something goes into you, you don't go into it. <laughs> you can't, can't do both at once. But when you study, that's what happens. Metaphysically, you, it is both going into you and you're going into it. Okay, let's keep on reading. We're on the top of page 58. For example, here's an example. Once you understand and achieve clarity in some halacha, in some ruling of the Mishnah or the Gemara, which is the Talmud. Did you know that? The word Gemara is the same word as Talmud. So in American, in the American world of, in the American Jewish community, they call it Talmud. The real word is Gemara. You study Gemara. That's the real word. Okay. So when you study, when you understand and achieve clarity in some halacha, which means a ruling, of the Mishnah or the Gemara, which is Talmud. Your mind has now grasped and assimilated that halacha. When you learn something in Jewish law and you understand it well, you have now just brought that idea within you. You now grasp it. Your mind grasps it. Yet, at the same time that you are internalizing the idea within your mind, your mind is also immersed and invested within that idea, within that halacha, right? So anything you study, when you learn Judaism, you learn Tanya, 
And we're talking about doing, uh, oh, that leaf says a merger. Very good. But it's a two-way merger. It merges into you and you merge into it. That's what's happened. The author is trying to bring out over here that you ingest, you literally bring within you every piece of information that you study. And as well, you enter into the world of anything whenever you properly study it. Two things happen at once. Now, where's the author going with this? What's the point of this whole conversation? Here's the point. Here's the point. Let's think about it. You have the opportunity to bring within you, literally bring in within you, the same way you do with food, an idea. Any idea. You could study astronomy. You can study architecture. You can study engineering. You could study math. You could also study Torah. When you study Torah, just like any subject, you are bringing within you and digesting a piece of information that is now going to be a part of you. And as Dr. Lieb said, I like that word, that idea has now merged with you. It is now part of who you are. Right? When, when we say two plus two equals four, do we quote our preschool teacher on that? Mrs. Goldstein told me when I was four, two plus two equals four. That's how I know it. No, we, we don't quote anybody because I get it. <laughs> you only quote somebody when it's not yours, your idea. It's mine. It merged with me. Part of who I am, part of how my mind thinks that two plus two equals four. It's not an idea. It's not that there's an idea and there's me. And, and I happen to know of the idea. No, the idea goes into you. It becomes part of you. Just like food becomes part of you. So we could do that with Torah. We could bring Torah into us and make it a part of us. That's a big deal. Why? Let's read. Grasping infinity. Now, this halacha, when you study a little bit of Judaism, this halacha is the wisdom and, desi and desire of the Holy One, blessed be He. What's Jewish law? You know, I want to give you a little bit of this introduction. What's Judaism? When you open up a Talmud, now we are a very weird religion. We're the only religion that has the value of studying for no purpose. You know, uh, the minimum, the minimum, not really, not the lowest bar, but really the minimum for a Jew is to study Torah at least for a good portion of time in the morning and a good portion of time in the evening. That's, that's, the, that's what Judaism expects of a Jew. At minimum, you're busy a whole day. First thing in the morning before work, you have to study. And after work, study. Well, no, you don't have to study for two hours each time, but it should be a respectable amount of time. Now, there's somebody who told me that he doesn't have time to study. To study, He's busy. I said, what about 20 minutes once a week in the morning before work? He says, that I can do. So we do it. 20 minutes is sizable. We cover ground every day. Not every day, but once a week. And we study for no purpose which means we're not trying to get anything. We're not trying to master anything. We just study. 
You know, if you'll ask a Jew who studies Talmud every single day, why do you study? What do you hope to get out of this? What's your goal? You know what the answer would be? No, there's no goal. I'm just studying. Why? Because a Jew studies Torah. But for what? Especially Talmud. Talmud is law. Talmud is primarily law. You know, you'll never find somebody in the airport that walks around with a big, thick American law book, reading American law. You'll be like, wow, are you like a big lawyer? You're a judge? No, no, no. I'm just an American, so I'm just studying the law of the land. Why, why is that weird? Right? You'll never find anybody doing that. No one cares about American law. You hire a lawyer when you need a lawyer. You hire an accountant when you need an accountant. I don't care about law. You just need to make sure you don't break the law. So you know whatever laws you need to know, which are not that much. And anything which is more nuanced, civil law and business law and criminal law, well, 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 what do I care? Judaism says, no, every Jew has to study. Every Jew has to know everything. And it's weird. Why? Like, I remember, I was, the first time I studied Talmud, my entryway into Talmud, I don't know how old I was, maybe 9, 10, maybe 11, I don't know. I remember we were studying, we're studying the scenario of, of, of neighbors who are in dispute. And they go to litigation. So different types of disputes different scenarios, what the law would be. I remember there was a case of a, uh, of a, of a building collapse, a two-story building with two owners. One guy owns the bottom floor, one guy owns the top floor, and they have an argument of who owns the rocks, the stones of the, of the middle of the building, which served as the ceiling for the lower owner and the floor for the top owner. Who owns those stones? It's a whole discussion problem. Can, can you imagine an 11-year-old in, in public school Spending hours about that, you'd be like, well, what's, what's going on over here? What, 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 what are you learning? <laughs> and as Jews, that's where we learned that. A child learns Gemara. What's in the Gemara? You learn about the case of a cow that gores an, uh, an ox that gores a cow. You learn the case of neighbor disputes, of civil law and criminal law and marriage law. Why? What's the point? And uh, this is a personal question as well. You know, all of you are people who dedicate time, which is a beautiful thing, an unbelievable thing, to study Torah. And um, it's easy to study here and there, but to make it a commitment that's on your calendar and you don't miss it, that's, that, that, that's a very special thing. It's a very commendable thing. So why? Why do you study Torah? I don't pay you to come, right? I don't pay you, right? You usually pay me. <laughs> for the Tanya classes, I don't, uh, I don't charge. But for the courses I charge, right? It has to be a real commitment. It's a real program. It costs money. But you don't walk out with any degree. It's not going to help you in life necessarily. So why do you study? So some would say they enjoy it. Some would say it's intellectually stimulating. So all different types of answers. Some people enjoy being Torah scholars. It's like a personal pleasure. It's a personal, it's like the status. I like being smart. 
Why, why study Torah? What does Torah have in it for us? What does Torah have in it for me as a Jew and for you as a Jew? So here's the thing. Most people don't study law because there's no real value in the study of law. There's no real value in the study of law. You know, why were laws created? Why did... Why, why does America make laws? Why did America make a constitution? You know, why were there always laws? Why was there common law? It's very simple. Because human beings are flawed. And we want to live in a civilization, in a society which is functioning, we could survive, we could thrive. You know, we don't want people, we don't want people killing each other. So what do we do? You got to make laws. So the legislators and people simply by experience look around and say, what, what, what laws do we need? What do we need to regulate? What here needs regulation? And we'll make those regulations. So the whole purpose of a law is simply there to help us, to help people. So there's, no point in, there's no point in studying it. As long as it's being followed, as long as it's being enforced, as long as we have lawyers who could who could guide us when we have a question. I don't need to study it. It's just utilitarian. But Jewish law is very different. Jewish law is not just laws to regulate people. And it's not, it's not just utilitarian. What is it? Jewish law, every part of Torah, but not just the mystical, spiritual parts of Torah. The most basic the most undignified part of Torah, the most dry part of Torah is simply God's wisdom and God's will. You want to understand God a little bit? You want to get a little bit of a feel for what God, how God thinks, what God's desires are? Study Torah. That's why I do study Torah. Let's read. Now this halacha, is the wisdom and desire of the Holy One, blessed be He. It arose in His will that if, for example, Reuben will argue such and such, right? Reuben and Simon. Reuben and Simon will show up to court. Reuben argues such and such. Simon will argue such and such. The final ruling between them will be such and such. This is what God decided. This is, what, this is God's will and wisdom. Which means... That even if the scenario with these arguments and claims never came to judgment and never will come to judgment, that is irrelevant. We don't learn Torah because it's practical. It's irrelevant. What matters is that this is what arose in the desire and wisdom of the Holy One, blessed be He. That if one person argues like this and the other argues like that, this will be the rule. I'm not here to know what to do practically. We don't study Torah so that we could have practical guidance in life. That's a side benefit. We study Torah because we simply get a piece of God's thinking process into our brain. And I don't care what I'm learning about. That's the value of studying Torah. A little bit of God's wisdom and a little bit of God's will enters into me. And I can let that now change my thought process and become part of who I am.
So let's keep on reading. That being so, so when you realize that this is the what Torah is really all about, so when you know and comprehend in your mind this ruling, which means any ruling, right? Any piece of Torah, this ruling, according to the halacha, as it is set out in the Mishnah or the Gemara or by the halachic authorities, you are comprehending and grasping, meaning mentally internalizing the desire and wisdom of the Holy One, blessed be He. Torah is God's wisdom and will. Torah is intellect. It's something you could study. So via the mind, you could internalize Torah, which means you internalize God himself. You want to get to know a little bit about how God thinks? You want to know a little bit about how God feels, what God's desires are? Studying Torah allows that to not just be something you can know, but something that you could digest and make a part of you. You want to get to know God in the most deepest level, intimately bonded, intimately merged with it, study Torah. Let's continue reading. Now, true, <laughs> no thought can grasp it, right? Quoting that, that, that quote from the Zohar that we've quoted so many times, no thought can grasp him. Who can, who can fathom God? Not him, not his desires. And not as wisdom, as we've learned earlier from the Zohar. But yet, nevertheless, you can grasp it by grasping these halachos that have been made accessible to us. Because within these halachos are invested his essence, his desire and wisdom. God invested himself in Torah. Torah could be ingested and digested by you. You study Torah, you bring God deep within you. And the author of adds, and not only is your mind encompassing them, the Torah, your mind is also invested within them. Right? Not just it goes into you, you go into it. You're surrounded by it. It's an unbelievable thing. The intellect, the human mind, is the deepest opportunity that there is to penetrate a human. If you want to change a human, the most powerful way to change a human is through the mind through the ideas that they study, through the ideas that they assimilate. It's a deepest invasion of your psyche. It changes the way you think. It changes your perspectives. It changes the way you feel about things. When you study Torah, you're allowing God to take over, to train you, to change you, to elevate you from inside out. You're not just entering into a holy space. You're allowing that holy space to go within you and make you holy, make you godly. That's the power of any, every intellectual concept has its power, but Torah has the power to give us the holiness to connect with God.
Let's let's read. This is a wondrous union. This concept that a person can unite so deeply with God, merge so deeply, that God becomes a that that the godly intellect, God's wisdom and will can enter into our mind and rewire our brain, rewire our heart, just like anything we'll learn. The author says, this is a wondrous union. It's unbelievable. There is no union similar to it in the physical universe, nothing even in its class. That two things should remain two things and yet become actually unified as one in every aspect. You could bring God into your life. You could also, through studying, you enter into a godly space. Because when you study, you're surrounded, you get immersed in that subject. And Torah is God. So you're, you yourself are eating up God. <laughs> as funny as it is to use that language. You're digesting God. You're allowing godly wisdom to change the way you think, to elevate your thinking. You enter into a space of godly thinking. This is the power of Torah study. Marshall, yes. How does that fall on the spectrum between the union of a husband and wife who become unified as one? How, how one do you actually become with your spouse? Well, ideally, you're two people who become one person. No, you don't really become one person, though. Theoretically. So, so meaning, very practically... <laughs> The, the the verse says the Torah says that, um, that that a man should leave his his parents' house and go find a wife, and they should become like one like one flesh. And everybody says, does a man and woman really become one flesh? So the the actualization of that biblical verse is in a child. A child is the flesh of is the merged flesh of two. Over here, man can reach God. And can bring God, not just that he has something godly in his life, but God becomes part of him. Just like food becomes you. It's actually amazing seeing it in children. You don't really see it in adults as much. Like children grow. It's like, wow, you grew so much over the summer. If they grew two inches, they literally grew from food. Food became them. So let's think about Torah, which is food, becomes you. God becomes you. It totally merges. You can't, it's inseparable. You and the Torah are one. You know, the Rebbe used to bless the, the yeshiva students to become Torah Jews. Not just a Jew who studies Torah. A Torah Jew. You are the Torah. <laughs> it's you. You study enough Torah that everything you think, the way you think, your worldview the way you you the, the way you process ideas, Torah. Let's continue reading. We have 15 minutes left, and I want to conclude the chapter. And at this point, the author says, Oh, now that we understand the power of Torah, now we can explain why Torah, from a certain perspective, is greater, is more supreme than mitzvahs. It has a deeper effect on the Jew. Let's read. Part two, the superiority of Torah over mitzvot. This is the extra advantage, an infinitely greater and wondrous advantage 
that the mitzvah of knowing and, and internalizing Torah has over all other mitzvahs. Over those that are performed by an action, even over those mitzvahs that are performed by speaking, and even over the mitzvah of verbalizing the Torah which you study. The mitzvah of studying and understanding, intellectually understanding Torah is the greatest mitzvah. Why? Because when you perform a mitzvah by speaking or doing, the Holy One, blessed be He, surrounds your soul like a garment. Right? There you have it, like a garment. And God's light encompasses you from head to foot. So a mitzvah, the energy of a mitzvah surrounds you. You enter into the space of light. It doesn't go into you, though. It only surrounds you, like clothing. But when you are engaged in the mitzvah of knowing Torah, then there are two opposite dynamics occurring. Not only is your mind immersed within God's wisdom, right? not only is there a light surrounding you, but God's wisdom is also deep within. Torah enables that energy not just to be surrounding you, but to go deeply within you. Your mind is comprehending and grasping. And so, mentally internalizing, whatever Torah knowledge you are capable of grasping and comprehending, each according to that person's mind and capacity for knowledge and comprehension in all the realms of Torah, from the literal to the esoteric. each person, every single Jew, while some are smarter, some are not as bright, some have uh, more sensitivity to deeper levels of Torah, some are not able to go as deep, it doesn't matter. Every Jew can study something according to your capabilities. And whatever you could study when you internalize it and learn it properly, you're bringing God with it. And you are fully merging with that. And with that, let's move on out to part three of the chapter, Food and Garments. And the author is going to conclude the chapter with this concept. That the analogy for Torah is food, the analogy for mitzvahs is garments. I thought it would be helpful if I introduced this analogy right at the beginning of the chapter. But the author only tells us about it here by the end of the chapter. So let's read. Part three. Since through the mitzvah of knowing Torah, the Torah becomes invested within a person's soul and mind and internalized within them, within you, within a person. Therefore, Torah is called bread and nourishment for the soul. There are many sources for this. The idea that Torah is referred to as bread, as sustenance, as food for the soul. Now, why is that? Right? We have two sources in the footnote. Proverbs 25-21 and the Zohar uses similar language of the Torah being like bread. So what, what, what's, what's the meaning of, that, of, of this analogy? It's the, now with this chapter we can understand. Let's read. Just as physical bread nourishes your body as you bring it actually inside of you all the way into your innards where there it's metabolized to become your own blood and flesh so that you continue living 
The same applies to Torah knowledge when it's grasped within the human soul. The same process of food, that's what Torah does for you. Bread, food, right? It's not, you have to eat it. It's not enough if it's on the table. It's not enough if it's in the pantry. You have to eat it. It's only going to work if you eat it. Ingest it. Digest it. Your body will metabolize it. And then it literally becomes you. It's not that there's food and you. There's only you. The food becomes you. Same thing with Torah. You have to, first of all, the author is going to say, you have to learn it well. You have to internalize it. If you study Torah, but you don't really study it properly, it's like a lot of peripheral information. It's not called eating. That's not called real studying. You have to eat it just like food. Internalize it. Grasp it to use that language. Let's read. The same applies to Torah knowledge when it's grasped within the human soul. When you learn it well, mentally focused on the subject until it's embedded in your mind and becomes a part of you to the point that you and Torah are one, then it becomes nourishment for the soul. You want Torah to nourish you and change you? Learn it well. You got to fully ingest it. You got to eat it up, which means learning well, concentration. Studying Torah is hard work. Learn it really well. And if you learn it well and you let it go into you, then what do you have? The author concludes, and I love this paragraph. Just listen to these words. There is now life within you from the one who gives all life. From the infinite, may he be blessed, who is invested within his wisdom and his Torah that is now within you. You took Torah and you ate it. God's in Torah. You've just brought God into you, into your soul. And now you get to reap the benefits of it. Right? Eat, you eat healthy food, you'll feel good. You'll get the benefits of all the nutrients and whatever, whatever goodness there is within there, all the vitamins. You eat God. Your body will, will your, your soul will now have that. Now you're healthy. You have good nutrients within you. Page 61. This is the meaning of the verse. Your Torah is within my bowels. <laughs> King David says this in Psalms. Your Torah is within my bowels. It's a very, very funny thing to say, no? The Torah is within my bowels. But now we understand why. You study Torah properly, it goes into you. Okay, let's, uh, let's conclude. We'll wrap up the chapter. We have a little bit more to read. This explains what is written in Eitz Chaim, one of the most classical Kabbalah books, Portal 44, Chapter 3. This is what it says in the Eitz Chaim. The clothing of the soul in the heavenly garden of Eden are the mitzvot performed here. Every mitzvah you do becomes a clothing that your soul uses in the next world. But the food for those souls is the Torah which they studied in this world. As long as they learned it authentically for its own sake, as stated in the Zohar, by Yaakov, page 210. So again, for the Torah to work, for the Torah to be food, the Zohar here stipulates you have to learn it properly, authentically, for its own sake. What does studying for its own sake mean? Let's continue reading. What does the Zohar mean here? 
by learning Torah for its own sake, it means learning Torah in order to connect your soul to God. Each person according to their mind's ability, as stated in Pri Yitzchai. The author says, you know, one of the real way to learn time, the, the real way to learn Torah, the real way to learn Torah, the proper intention, the proper attitude, is I'm studying simply because I want to connect with God. And I want to bring God within me. Don't study because it's interesting, it's enriching, it's intellectually stimulating. That's all true, but that's not the point. As Jews, why do we study Torah? I get a chance to connect with God. That's authentic learning. That's the right attitude. You know, I don't tell this to most people, <laughs> but I offer four courses every year, right? And part of what I love about the course is we always make sure to change up the topic and the genre. And that always enables new people to come with new interests. But it also very often means that, of course, even somebody who's come to previous Torah classes will not be too interested in the new topic. So very often, and I, I work hard, I market our new courses, and uh, sometimes I'll speak with somebody and they'll say, you know what, Rabbi, I love learning with you, but this course is not uh, doesn't interest me. So usually what I say is no problem. Everybody has different interests. And, uh, you know, you'll wait, wait around until there's another course that talks to you more. But with people who I feel could handle it and I'm comfortable with, I'll push them and I'll say, come anyways. We don't study Torah just because it's interesting to me. You study Torah because it's Torah. You think it's relevant. You think it's not relevant. Who cares? A Jew studies Torah. A Jew connects to God through studying Torah. If it's interesting and if it's relevant, that's a bonus. It's not why we're doing it. So I push people, come anyways. And by the way, you'll see, you'll enjoy it either way. I don't give bad classes. I make sure that all my classes are good and interesting and stimulating and enriching and relevant. <laughs> but that's not the point. Oh, I don't like this type of Torah study. No, 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 no. We study. A Jew studies Torah. That's the proper way. Okay, there's a parenthesis here, which is a little bit deep. I'm going to read it. I'm not really going to explain much. And with this, we're going to conclude the chapter. And then I want to show you a little video, a little music video, something a little bit, uh, a little bit nice and sweet to conclude the evening. All right, the parentheses towards the bottom of page 61. The soul's food refers to its ability to internalize divine light. whereas its clothing referred to its sensitivity to the encompassing transcendent divine light, which means when we say that a soul in the world to come needs food and clothing, this is what it means. Okay, there's a lot of Kabbalistic lingo. Don't ask me to explain it to you. <laughs> this explains why our rabbis of blessed memory said that the study of Torah is equal to all the other mitzvos, Because the mitzvos are clothing alone. Whereas Torah's nourishment as well as clothing for the thinking divine soul that invests itself within it at the time of focused study. Page 62. All the more so when you articulate the words of Torah verbally, then the breath of speech 
elicits encompassing transcendent divine lights as stated in the pre Chaim. With that, we conclude the parentheses, and with that, we conclude chapter five. And at dear friends, at this moment, it's 8.30 on the button. That was great. We just concluded a chapter in an hour. Jason, you have a question? Yeah, just why the parentheses for that part alone? I was actually just curious about that. Um, so parentheses would be put in to the Tanya uh, when there's something that the altar of it feels has to be mentioned, but it's not directly related to the flow of ideas. That's what a parentheses would be, which means that also gives us a little bit of leeway to not explore it in depth. We'll say like, you know, from the author's perspective, he had to say this. Uh, he couldn't finish the chapter without explaining this, but uh, it's still a little bit of a parenthesis, which means it's not directly related to the important flow of ideas. So dear friends, I hope that tonight's class and this chapter gave us a deeper understanding of our work, our engagement in Torah study. Um, and really, if you want to understand Jewish, the Jewish philosophy, the Jewish understanding of why Jews study Torah and what the Torah is really all about, this is the chapter that really gives us, this chapter gives us the real understanding of that. And I want to play for you right now a nice little song. It's three minutes. I love this song. So here we go. Here's our little video. Enjoy. Fast food, fast cars might be their obsession But I'm sitting here with your prized possession Your holy words, they never get old Finer than wine, colder than gold I'm sticking around and you're the reason You give me a hook and I sink my teeth in You drop your manner at my door Keeps me wanting more and more I'm sticking around and you're the reason I'm sticking around and you're the reason You give me a hook and I sink my teeth in Your words are diamonds in the rough I can't ever get enough I'm sticking around and you're the reason I'm sticking around and you're the reason Jet planes and trains may take you many places I'm happy here with your scrolls and pages Their restless hearts, they wander out all night But your tree of life is my greatest delight I'm sticking around and you're the reason You give me a hug and I sink my teeth in Your words are diamonds in the rough I can't ever get enough I'm sticking around and you're the reason I'm sticking around, and you're the reason. Your walls of parchment reach to the sky. Every letter's got fire inside. That doors of heaven open up through your pages. Your words, they take me to my promised land. 
sink my teeth in You drop your matter at my door Keeps me wanting more and more I'm sticking around Any other reason I'm sticking around Any other reason You give me a hug And I sink my teeth in Your words are diamonds in the rough I can't ever get enough I'm sticking around Any other reason I'm sticking around Any other reason I'm sticking around The other reason You give me a hug And I sink my teeth in You drop your manner at my door Keeps me wanting more and more I'm sticking around Any other reason I'm sticking around And you're the reason You give me a hug And I sink my teeth in Your words are diamonds in the rough I can't ever get enough I'm sticking around Any other reason I'm sticking around any other reason. All right. That is it. Great. It's a great song. I like it. Song. A little, like a little love song to the yeah. top. Right. Isn't that nice? Okay. And with that, we conclude. Next week, chapter six, we are done. We have with this concluded our uh, exploration of the godly soul. We are ready to get introduced to the animal soul and its entire anatomy. And when we have full clarity of the godly soul and the animal soul, then we'll be ready to discuss the dynamics, the relationship, real life living with two souls, which are so very different, both stuck in one body. The conflict, the struggle, the drama. So that's what's coming up next. But... We'll make our way there. Again, Tanya is very methodical. So with this, we conclude the godly soul. We have just concluded a good chunk of Tanya. We're now moving on to the next little topic. All right, Zagazont. <clears throat> have a wonderful night, everybody.